This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. This episode is sponsored by the Live Alcohol Experiment, a 30-day science-based and compassion-led journey where you learn to develop a healthier relationship with alcohol without relying on willpower. Why? Because the truth is that willpower runs out. Instead, you learn how to focus on what you gain, not what you give up, so you can feel good about the decisions you make without shame or guilt. With the 30 days of video training, virtual daily coaching, and a private and supportive community, you get that and so much more. Join us today to get happier, healthier, and to take back your life. Your live alcohol experiment starts on the 1st, so sign up at livealcoholexperiment.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast, and I am here with Steve. Hi, Steve. Hey, Annie. How are you? I'm so good. It's so good to see you. Good to see you, too. Awesome. So why don't you sort of take us back to the beginning in your relationship with alcohol, like your first drink or the early days? Where did it all start for you? Yeah, so, I mean, I I guess I sort of just want to give people an overview of my story. Um, I'm a 40-year-old gay man living in New York City. And I have not had a drink in almost three years. It's been a thousand plus days at this point. And I come to this point after a really, really difficult journey of my own drinking and my ex-boyfriend struggling with alcoholism um, for many years and then passing away from it um, four years ago. The time is flying by, it's crazy. Um, So a lot of my adult life has been shaped by alcohol taking things from me. And um, I wrote about my story in depth for um, New York Magazine in the cut, which was really cathartic and helpful. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is because I felt like there is not enough education about alcoholism and there's so much shame around that word. And are you an alcoholic? Are you not? And I mean, you know, and having read your book and your book is really something that, you know, helped me, you know, come to my own conclusion about alcohol, but, you know, there's just not enough education out there for people um, in terms of how to stop drinking, why, you know, drinking is so glamorized in our society and it's part of having fun and, and what we do. And there's not enough people out there that challenge that idea. And so, you know, part of the reason why, I've shared my story and, and why I'm here with you is, is to honor Ryan, my, my ex who passed away. Um, you know, I just wanted to get that out there right in the beginning. He was someone, he was an amazing guy. He loved to help people. Um, he never really wanted to talk about this. Um, and so I struggle with that part of it, but I know that he would want to save people in any way that he can. And I, I think it's important um, to tell people what happened to him um, in a country that, you know, doesn't take care of people with addiction. Um, so I just want to get that out there from the beginning. You know, we started dating when I was in my twenties, um, in late twenties, he was five years older than me and he worked in the service industry where alcohol is flowing constantly. And I think that, you know, if you look at any industry and I think anybody listening can know like, oh, you know, in, in my industry, there's drinking, in my industry, there's drinking. 
uh, you know, and you write about in your industry, there was drinking, you know, for me, I'm a TV news producer. I was, there's was drinking after like lots of different shows. And so, you know, we all have these touch points in terms of our career and how we socialize and, and potentially get ahead and, and, you know, relate to our peers. Um, you know, but Ryan was always around alcohol and, you know, there was a lot of secrecy around the drinking. And, you know, for me, I was so naive. Like on, on one hand, here I am like a TV news producer in New York City, working for ABC, access to a lot of information. And then I'm totally baffled by the kind of um, behaviors I'm seeing at home. Um, you know, it, it would range from, you know, him kind of being, you know, now I know he was drunk, but at the time I was rationalizing like, oh, that, that was a weird behavior or why did he fall asleep at 7.30 and, you know, finding bottles around the apartment and, um, you know, it, it was really troubling, but they were isolated incidences and friends would sort of help, but then be like, oh, everything's fine. And, you know, there gets to be so much under the rug over time that ultimately we did break up and, you know, about a year and a half um, went by. And I'll tell you in that year and a half, he drank more and he drank more and he drank more. Mm -hmm. And it came to my attention, you know, that I needed to intervene. Um, we set up a meeting. Um, and at that point, when I saw him, his eyes um, were yellow. And um, that was completely alarming and scary. And, um, you know, you Google that, that's jaundice. That means liver failure. That means the body is polluted. Um, he said that he was just sick. It was the flu. It was just more of the kind of, you know, negotiating with the truth, uh, which he often did. And, you know, so if that was around um, Valentine's Day, he, you know, went back home, he, to his parents, uh, was admitted, started dialysis, and um, they were not able to save him. And, you know, I never would have imagined that this is where we would be, um, that he would decline so quickly. Um, the dialysis process is horrific. If you know someone that is on dialysis for any kind of kidney issue, um, they're taking all of your blood out, cleaning it, and then putting it back in. Mm -hmm. And it's horrible when you have light at the end of the tunnel, and it's devastating when you know that there, there certainly isn't any light at the end of the tunnel. And you know, I went to Missouri to see him. I had a feeling things were bad. Uh, they were worse than I thought. And, you know, one of the things I remember thinking is, why the hell don't we see images like this? You know, Ryan did not look good. And, uh, you know, his skin was totally jaundiced. He had aged a lot. The eyes were still yellow, very frail. And, you know, here we are as a, a culture, we see anti-smoking ads, we see all kinds of things in the media now, but nobody tells us that this is what happens when, you know, you drink too much. And that really pissed me off. Yeah. And I didn't, and so I wanted to do something about it. Um, again, that's why I'm talking now with you and, and, and the work that I've done um, in my career in journalism. But you know, part of that process just to illuminate, you know, what goes on 
um, the doctor said, you know, let's talk about his sobriety. Let's talk about his ability to be sober. Let's see if he's a candidate for a transplant. And we went through this agonizing process while Ryan was there. He was spoke very little at this point. He said his final words and was kind of slipping in and out. It was very painful. He was still going to dialysis, you know, really right up until, you know, his final day. And they take the your kind of answers to the committee about his sobriety and his lifestyle and his ability to stay sober to the hospital committee for, you know, whether or not he could be a candidate for a transplant. And I just remember like carrying on about like, you've just got to save him. And, you know, it felt like we were there. I mean, minutes felt like hours and they mm -hmm. came back and they said the board said that he was not a candidate for a transplant. The doctor at that point said, you know, even if he, if we transplanted him right now, the brain has been so polluted with the toxins um, that the person that we remember wouldn't come back. And that, that was some of the hardest news uh, that we had really had to reconcile because, you know, you really hold on to hope. And at that point, it really felt like all hope was gone. And so, you know, after Ryan passed, I spent a lot of time blaming myself, um, feeling guilty, you know, how could this happen on my watch? Mm. Um, I let him down. Uh, I spent a lot of time in therapy about this, uh, so I won't get too much into it. Um, but just to say that my answer to that personally was, I'm gonna drink. I have so much pain and I have this really intense job and when it comes to the time for the weekend, I'm going to drink and I'm going to stay out until 4 a.m. and I'm just gonna like lose myself. And I totally did lose myself. And, you know, it was a hard time. And I think when I look back at my, I, I call it a career in drinking because it really was a long career in drinking. And it had, you know, what, I thought at the time were fun times and some low times. And I want to share some of those low times for me too. You know, I mean, looking back, I think at the time I would try and reconcile these as like, oh, it was nothing. But now I look at it and I'm like, that was crazy. You know, one time I was on Fire Island, drinking, drinking, hanging out. I stayed up way past everybody else, drank alone by the pool, went to bed. And woke up with like the worst migraine, could barely make it back to New York City, had to go to my doctor first thing, was on a, a, a telemedicine call, you know, at like 2 a.m. with a doctor, was sent to the urgent care facility where I spent the entire day, it was like a Monday, I spent an entire day um, hooked up to an IV, I did brain scans and everything and nothing was wrong and I was fucking dehydrated. <laughs> Because I drank too much. And, you know, I haven't really talked about that because I was like, let me just like, oh, I was just sick. But it's like, that's a level of sickness that, you know, people say like, are you an alcoholic or are you not? Like, I don't know, but I spent a day in an ER <laughs> hooked up to an IV because I overdid it, you know? And I remember, you know, for me, like appearance is so important and the doc, the, the nurse, guy like bandaged me up and 
there was like blood in my arm coming through the bandage because he kind of did it quick and I was like well I want to go to Jamba Juice <laughs> or whatever the hell it was called so I like went in the drawer and was like taping myself up and I went to this like juice place on the corner and I remember the guy looking at me I must have looked like absolute shit and he was like you okay man because I think I had like the hospital thing on. I looked like I broke loose from somewhere <laughs> And so I got my juice and I left. And I remember thinking, oh God, like this is a new, this is a new low. And, but I kept drinking. And, you know, it, at some point along the way, I got your book. And then this other major event happened in my life where I was at a, um, a workout class after a big bender of a weekend. And I couldn't catch my breath. I was like totally, totally panicking. Like my heart was racing nothing I could do was changing, you know, my breath. And I ended up in an ambulance uh, in a uh, driving through Central Park to the hospital, did all the tests, spent another day at the hospital, um, eventually calmed down. And one of the things the heart doctor said after looking at my blood that they took that day was that some of the enzymes in my liver were high and you know, maybe that was from drinking and, you know, maybe a lot of things, but I was like, this is bad. I came home, I had those sticky heart monitor things all over my body. I was scared. Instead of leading the show that I was in charge of at the time, I was in the back of an ambulance riding through Central Park. And I thought, okay, um, I need to take a break. I had been thinking about changing my relationship with alcohol for a while, I had started reading your book. Um, and, you know, there was just such a, such a conflict in how I was mm -hmm. feeling about my own life and where I wanted to be versus you know, where I was. And where I was, was, you know, this cycle of shame, guilt, self-loathing, you know, have a few good days at work and then rinse and repeat. And so when people talk about moderation, it's hard to moderate when you're not used to moderating. You know, I came out of the closet at the end of college and part of that process was like, let's go binge drink in New York City. And so that's what we did. And that's what we kept doing. And a lot of us didn't stop. And it was part of what the community was about. And I think, you know, that's what's scary to me too, is I think that there's a lot of, you know, drug use and abuse, alcohol use disorder, that's really not being talked about in the LGBTQ community. Um, and so when Ryan passed away and with my story, um, you know, I think it's important to just talk more about, you know, what's going on with people. There's a lot of depression and mental illness, and I'm glad to see that's in the news more. But I think one of the things we're not talking about is substance abuse. You know, we're talking about it on the back end. You know, we saw a couple of weeks ago, the New York Times, um, coming out and a lot of people reporting this, but more people, there was a death, uh, a spike in deaths during the pandemic. Um, people younger than 65. We knew people were drinking more during the pandemic and now we know the numbers and it's, it's awful. And so when I think about all of the people that were probably on dialysis in 2020 and 2021, and even right now, you know, their stories are not being told. And I think you know, one of the things that I hope to see change is that media starts to tell these stories more the way that you're doing. Um, we've never really seen a dialysis patient with alcohol use disorder on 
a show like Good Morning America or um, sharing their story on the evening news. Why? You know, that's, I think that's where we need to get to. Why do you think it is, Steve? I mean, you kind of have an insider track and I'd love to hear. Yeah, I think, I think the same reasons why people don't want to talk about their own drinking, right? They feel shame. They don't want to change. Um, I hear a lot from people, you know, a lot of my friendships are, are kind of based on alcohol. And if I give it up, I'm going to lose my friends. I'm going to lose my place in society and culture. Um, and so I think programmers and executives also have issues around alcohol and alcohol use. Um, and, and it's just sort of like, nah, let's not go there. Or, you know, the other thing is it's too sad. We don't, we can't do sad stories, but then, you know, you look at other stories. I mean, you know, we've been covering stories about cancer for a really long time. Um, you know, HIV and AIDS finally got their place in media, although not enough, you know, certainly there's more to do in all of these spaces, honestly. But the, the, the one, one of the true black holes in media really is alcohol consumption. Nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think, um, and this is kind of a loaded question, I guess, but uh, so don't, don't have to answer, or maybe you don't know, but, you know, alcohol is historically one of the largest uh, advertisers on television in America. Occasionally, cars outpace alcohol and spending, but it, most of the year, and that's usually around the holidays when they have, you know, all the car sales, but most of the year, alcohol is the top dog in terms of media spending, specifically on television. And do you think there's a, a relationship or a correlation there? Maybe not even intentionally, but just kind of I don't think so. It's never been my experience. I mean, at, at reputable news organizations, there is a there is a wall between sales and editorial. Awesome. Um, and so we've investigated the car companies. We've investigated all kinds of um, industries in the past um, and have not been told to change or, or do otherwise. So you know, I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, obviously, big alcohol and their lobby, you know, keeps um, you know, anti-alcohol messaging from getting out, you know, and I, I wonder now too, if we're in a place like, you know, where we were with smoking, you know, 20 years ago, you know, I think now we're seeing the non-alcoholic beverage space, you know, that's growing something like 300% year over year. Consumers are demanding healthier lifestyles. You know, is it going to start to creep in where we're going to see um, PSAs saying, you know, alcohol is bad for you. I remember like 15 years ago, we were saying, well, you know, red wine and resveratrol and there were all these news reports. It's like, that's not really like, don't go for like a CrossFit workout and then have your favorite Merlot. I mean, these things don't match up. And the messaging for a really long time has been that. And I'm hoping that that's starting to change. Yeah, it's fascinating to me because I think that like so many things you just said that are worth worth unpacking. I mean, there was recently um, an article, uh, a journal article that came out about heart health and how, you know, they kind of did a meta study, which is studying all the studies. And they said, yeah, definitively, there's no heart health with even moderate drinking. Um, same with overall health. You know, an article came out in 2021 about 
again, a meta study of lots of different studies, 26,000 participants, huge credibility, says no amount of alcohol is safe. And it's fascinating to me that these things don't get air, you know, they get like one or two, but I think a lot of it has to do with what you were saying about us as individuals are not willing to share those types of articles. Like I even, I even did some research into what gets shared and what doesn't and like the science of social sharing and something that is going to be pro alcohol is shared at a rate of 10,000 to one versus something that's, that's again, because even the people who have been impacted in their life, they still don't want to be quote the Debbie Downer, you know, or the buzzkill. And so it, it just doesn't, it doesn't get shared. It's not well known. Well, and I'll tell you, I shared that New York Times uh, reporting about the 2020 alcohol deaths on my Facebook, um, which has become a little bit more inactive. I'm not super active on that platform. I thought maybe, oh, I'm going to write something and share it. And no one saw it. <laughs> I think it got one like after 12 hours. And you know, I don't know if that's an algorithm and if it has something to do with my account or what Facebook is doing, but it, it, it went nowhere. Not even my mom, my mom didn't even see it. So, you know, yeah, I think the messaging is not coming to the surface enough at all. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, the last time I was on GMA, I was asked about the, the non-alcoholic drink trend and the fact that we're going from 400 million to like 1.5 trillion by 2026. And that's just but that's a very positive angle. That's, you know, it's a business angle. It's, it's very light touch. There's nothing sad in that message. There's nothing um, personally convicting in that message for people who are, you know, drinking. And so at least, at least that's happening. And I think that's at least positive, you know, people are saying, okay, this is, this is catching on in a bigger way. Yeah. I think one of the things that you said to me recently when we were talking is, you know, a part of living naked and, and the, this naked mind is about creating a life that you don't want to escape from. And I think that's something that, you know, people can really wrap their heads around. You know, for me, you know, I had this sort of North Star of what I wanted my life to be. And parts of it were in place and, and parts of it were not in place. And I knew that until I could take care of this drinking um, and this kind of cycle that I was in, that I was not going to achieve or have those things in my life, you know, and it, it kind of feels like, you know, reaching your true potential. Um, and I, I, you know, alcohol is a depressive and, you know, the cycle of it is, and one of the things you say in the book, I reread this morning, it's like, it, you drink now, however much you drink now, you drink more than you did five years ago. And in five years, you're gonna drink more than you did today. And I thought that is absolutely true, right? And so at the time when I was, you know, just wrapping up my career in drinking, you know, I was at dinner and having two martinis because vodka sodas weren't enough and wine was not enough because dinner was really supposed to be a launch pad for like, an epic night out. So start with two martinis and then do beers and tequila shots and more beers. And, you know, I think about that last drink that I had, which I barely finished, it was like a Bud Light in a plastic um, cup. And it's like, it was almost 4am. And I'm like, well, how pathetic is that? You know, like, here's this thing that I invested so much time and money in. And it ends in a plastic cup of Bud Light in a dark bar somewhere. 
I mean, that is not something that is a rewarding behavior, right? Yeah, it's so interesting. I am. Um... I, two things that I, I want to, well, actually, I have a bunch of questions for you, but, but first of all, um, social life in New York City, not drinking. Can you talk to us about that, how that is? Yeah. Well, I think it was hard at first. Um, and, you know, I would take an edible. Um, I don't like relying on those either. Um, but I think they help soften the initial, you know, few months of kind of going out. But yeah, my life did change. You know, I don't see 4 a.m. anymore. And some of my friendships have changed and that's okay. You know, we evolve and you have to be, um, you have to be kind to yourself, mm -hmm. right? And know that you're doing something that not everybody else is doing. And some people are gonna join you and some people are gonna keep doing what they're doing and that's okay, that's their choice. But, you know, for me also like the pandemic, I guess kind of helped because everybody was home and nobody was at bars and it kind of took away that social pressure. Um, you know, but people have been back in bars now for almost a year here since the vaccine came out. Um, you know, so you kind of go and I'm generally fading around midnight, 1230. Um, part of that comes with age. I'll be 40 in August. And, you know, again, like life changes. I think, you couldn't have told me, you couldn't have paid me a million dollars to do this 10 years ago. And that's one of the big things that I regret. If I had changed my behavior, could Ryan have changed his, could he still be here? Um, you know, all of these things. I think, you know, one of my big things that I say to people is you've never met someone who says, I wish I drank more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, I wish I drank less. I wish I stopped sooner. Um, and I think that's something you know for people to really think about. Yeah, that's so that's so true. I was um, I was kind of speaking to a bunch of people, and I was giving this thought exercise about you're on a train. The bridge ahead of you is out. You know the bridge is out. This is common knowledge, and the train is accelerating at five miles per hour every hour. So next hour is going to go 10. The next hour it's going to go 15. And it's like, when's the best time to get off the train? <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah. well, now. So why don't we, why don't we get off the train when we know the bridge is out, you know? And it's, it's, it's a very, I think, loaded question with a ton of answers. But I think one of the things is that often what people identify with, and I certainly did, is that we're waiting for something, either a future version of ourself to come and sort of rescue us like, oh, well, I'm gonna, uh, it's, it's that whole tomorrow thing or some sort of circumstance is going to prove to us, you know, whether it's the doctor telling us we need to stop or whether it's, you know, the um, situation and we're almost just waiting for it to get bad enough. And that's one of the things that I really want to just have us explore as a culture. Like why, why are we waiting for it to get bad enough? Why not be yeah. able to look at it now? Well, I mean, that's because there's been all this language around rock bottom and people are like waiting for this rock bottom, right? To wake them up or they think uh, cameras are gonna come in and they're gonna be on A&E's intervention or, or something monumental is gonna happen. And, and that's just not the truth, you know? That's not the experience. Rock bottom is gonna be different for everybody. Um, you know, for me and for Ryan, you know, we went to therapy um, I had my own therapist. We went to couples counseling and we talked about all these issues. And I, 
I look back and I, I, I get mad because I'm like, how come that therapist didn't save him, save us, any of that? And was it even a topic of conversation or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just, uh, it, it's hard to understand how it was missed. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, I think that you can only do so much too. You know, when you have someone like Ryan who wasn't really admitting to the problem, right, until the very, very end. Um, and, society and culture, you know, being the way it is, um, people get by and people don't want to see the truth uh, about some of it, you know, and yeah. Yeah. It is so tough. One of the, one of the other things that I, I really like talking about from a position of just exposing is I think one of the reasons we miss it and that we collectively don't look at it is actually in the labeling. And what I mean by that is if you think about the only disclaimer that has to be on anything alcoholic, unless you're in a bar and there's a pregnancy notification behind bars, but other than that, any packaging is drink responsibly. And if you, if you consider that message, it is so shame inducing because it's basically saying that you human being, if you cannot drink an addictive substance that is nobody nobody disagrees that this is addictive to human beings right there's not there's not debate in that but if you can't engage with it quote responsibly then it's really on you and and i read a staggering statistic recently that if americans decided to drink responsibly um 80 of the alcohol sales would stop tomorrow and and that would be, you know, one drink a, a week for, or one drink a day for women, two drinks a day for men, which would be the definition of drink responsibly, according to the CDC. And it's, it's which is just, already too much, right? Which is according to all of the other research, no amount of alcohol is safe. Even that much alcohol increases, you know, all sorts of cancers, but, but just that, that, right. that phrase is really infuriating to me because I feel like that phrase, the, the subconscious undertones of that means that we're not going to talk about it. If we feel irresponsible, we're going to blame ourselves. Like it's inherent in even that language. Right. Yeah. No, it, it's put on, on us. We're the problem, you know, when really, you know, the substance is addictive. And like you said, it, it's, we drink more now than we did before and we will in the future. And you know, I'm hoping that that messaging changes. I think it's going to take a lot to do it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't even know of any initiatives or, or actions or, or anything attempting that change at this point. I mean, granted, I'm not in the know about everything, but I certainly haven't heard of anything. So one of the things that I liked on your social media the other day was the definition of what an alcoholic is and kind of sparsing that out with alcohol use disorder. Um, I think that's part of the messaging too that needs to change. You know, there's so much change around alcoholic. Um, when people have varying degrees of issues with alcohol throughout their lives, you may have a bad period, you may get it under control or it may come back. Um, and I think moderation is hard for a lot of people. And it doesn't, it doesn't define you. None of those, well, that's one of the things that I find incredibly frustrating in this whole dialogue is that 
we've taken, you know, somebody who's struggling with drinking, we've taken their entire worthiness as a human being and, and shrunk it down to the, did they drink or did they not drink, right? Um, and, and that's what we do to ourselves if we're really trying not to drink and we're struggling with it. And I think, you know, that, that difference between the word alcoholic, which by the way, there's no heroinaholic or cigarette-holic or, you know, those things, because we clearly know those are, nicotine is addicted. Heroin is addictive. Those things are addictive to a human being. So we don't create a term that goes after the words I am that defines the human, but we do with alcohol, which is incredibly strange. And I think very, very toxic. And the alcohol use disorder spectrum, if you answer affirmative to two of the questions, you have mild alcohol use disorder. Those questions are, did you ever need to drink more than before to get the same effect as one? And do you ever, did you ever have a time where you regretted how much you drank? One time. And if you answer yes to those two questions, you have mild alcohol use disorder. I personally do not know a drinker that has not answered yes to those two questions. And so like, yeah. it isn't an alcoholic problem, whatever that term even means, by the way, they tell you, you have to define it. There's no scientific or medical definition for that word. It is an everyone problem. And until we start talking about it like that, the shame is going to perpetuate. Yeah. And there's two things that I, I also wanted to put in before we, we close out. Um, you know, the, talking about all this reminds me of, you know, once I, I went to my own doctor and I said, you know, my boyfriend, when he drinks, he becomes erratic. It's like a quick person. It's like a sudden personality shift falling and all these things. And I said, is it like biological? Is there like, can he not process alcohol? Is, the, is there like an allergy to alcohol? And, you know, I look back at that doctor and I'm thinking, why didn't you help this patient with an alcoholic boyfriend, right? Because he was like, no, you know, maybe he just drank too much. And, you know, there was no substantial help from right. him, from the medical community, not from my general practitioner, not from my couple's counselor years later. Um, so even the medical field is totally unprepared to sort of help with people who come in with things they don't really know how to talk about, right? Um, and it's really hard. You know, I think one of the things, you know, for me that helped, you know, make drinking, stop drinking easier, you know, a, a big part of my story is the relationship that I'm in now with my boyfriend, Craig. Um, and, you know, Craig and I met as, you know, Ryan was, you know, on the decline. And at the same time, Craig's brother um, was also struggling um, with having been an alcoholic and, and he was in dialysis centers all over the tri-state area. And we kind of went through this, you know, strange time um, and Ryan passed. And then, you know, time is weird during these, maybe it was a week or 10 days later and, and Stephen passed. And um, Stephen had two young boys uh, and a wife and, um, you know, it, it just makes me think, you know, both Ryan and Steven, you know, Ryan was 40 and, you know, they were very close in age and these are people who should still be with us. And, you know, I, I just wanted to bring up, you know, put another face to what is, what is out there. These statistics are real people. Um, and I, I just want to, you know, dedicate, 
you know, my talking about this to Ryan, to Ryan's family, our friends, um, and to Craig and, and all of um, their friends and family too. That's so amazing, Steve. I love that. Thank you so much um, for coming on and, and for sharing all of that and just having such an open discussion about it. I know it's it's not easy and we'll definitely link your article um, because it was so powerful. I remember it was one of the first things that I got to know you through and it's it's really well written and it's really powerful. So I'll make sure that that's available in the podcast notes for people to learn even more about this. Um, so Thanks. let's finish off, or yeah. sorry, did you have anything else you no, want to? That's great, thank you. Awesome. Let's finish off with the, the question I sort of end all of these things with. And that is, you know, if you were going to go back to yourself personally in the days of Chamba Juice and, you know, looking like you just escaped from somewhere, which is morbidly funny, but the inner pain, I'm sure, and the kind of incongruence with who you wanted to be. And you're just going to talk to him about what your life is like now and who you are today. What would you tell him? You got to be kinder to yourself. Mm. And this is something I say to myself um, a lot nowadays too. You know, you have to be a friend to yourself. Um, somebody said to me recently, you know, the longest relationship you're ever in is with yourself. And so talk to yourself like a friend. Um, and I think that might have helped. Yeah. Um, and I think also it, it's hard to do something different, but it's okay to be brave. It's okay to try, it's okay to fail. Um, and you'll pick yourself back up again. Um, and there's a lot of things I would tell a young Steve, um, but, but those are just two of the, the big things. You know, I, I love the, the writings by young Pueblo and he, and he signed a book for me and he said, may you be happy and free. Mm. Um, and I thought about that a lot um, in the time since he wrote that. And, and I, I do feel happy and I feel free. Oh, gives me chills. I love that so much. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and Ryan's story and Stephen's story thank and uh, just so powerful. And thank Thanks, you for the work Ryan. that I know you're getting ready to do in the world. And yeah. I'm so excited about, about that. Do you want to mention that at all? Well, we're still in the early stages, but I think just know that I'm really looking to advance the dialogue in, in media about addiction issues, particularly around alcoholism. And um, yeah, more to come. And, and again, thank you for your work. Your book uh, changed my life. It's one of the things that I send to people who are struggling, uh, even rereading parts of it this morning. Uh, I just, I was looking at all my dog-eared like uh, pages and I was like, I remember exactly why this hit home and you know, why it made me change. And um, so thank you. Awesome. Hi, it's Annie Grace. I wanted to interrupt this podcast, I guess the end of this podcast, to say that if you're totally serious about actually and truly and forevermore transforming a relationship with alcohol, really leaving it behind in the rearview mirror for once and forever and changing your psychology about it, we have a program called The Path that I've created specifically for you. Now, it's not for you if you're still dabbling or trying to figure out where you want to be or maybe even if you still want to moderate. All those things are fine. That's great. But if you're beyond that and you're like, no, I just want to be done with this. I'm ready to invest some time. And I'm ready to just make this happen. I want the answer. I want the easy way out. Then I want you to check out Naked Mind Path 
thecoachpath.com and join us in the path where you receive coach-guided and community support so that you can truly make this lasting change that you want in your life. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.